This is Irish Illustrated Insider. I'm Tim Priester with Tim O'Malley. It is Thursday, December 10th. We are nine days away from the ACC championship game in Bank of America Stadium in Charlotte, North Carolina. Notre Dame, a seven and a half point underdog against Clemson. Uh, let's start with that, Tim. You, does that line seem about right to you? Surprised by it? What? Um, yeah, I think so. It's, uh, that's what it was earlier in the year when Notre Dame and then Notre Dame started to uh, look a little worse than we thought they'd be after Duke, I suppose is the way to say it. And the line went up. And of course, when Trevor Lawrence went out, that all bets went off at that point. But I mean, that's basically two points more than Uni Young Galay. So I wouldn't think, I actually like that line because I think if it was 10 and a half. Every Notre Dame fan in the world would be like, I'm taking Notre Dame. And then, you yeah. know, we would be suckered into something that you don't want to get suckered yeah. into. So I, I think it's, it's a pretty good line, yeah. a, a real line where, um, There'd be plenty of people taking both sides of that one. Yeah. And we're, you know, injuries are going to be at the forefront of everything that we talk about here for the next nine days. Uh, illness is unlikely to be a topic, uh, especially with Trevor Lawrence back in the lineup, which creates, look, we know how great he is. And you can say, Uyangalele had 439 yards and Lawrence probably isn't going to throw. It's more than that. The quarterback position is more than just the, the statistics. And, you know, I've, We've talked about this. I think we talked about it Monday. I wrote about it in Thursday Thoughts. The My biggest concern is not having Jarrett Patterson and oh. them having Tyler Davis in the middle of their defensive line. I just think that that – I still think that – I think that Notre Dame's defensive line still wins the battle against their offensive line, or it should. Right. Uh, but whereas Notre Dame's offensive line uh, clearly won the battle last time out, the Patterson-Davis exchange makes it a little bit more difficult, a lot you know, more difficult. You're fond of saying that we don't see everybody in the country, so we don't know if you're the best in the country at some in particular thing. I I really thought Notre Dame's offensive line was the best line of the country when they had everybody, and now I just don't think that can be true. <laughs> I, don't yeah. know, I don't know why you would lose a, a player that was going to be a Remington finalist and be as good, and, then, and of course Clemson is adding Tyler Davis, who's a problem and he's healthy. That is what I look at as the biggest problem. We, we've discussed this back and forth. Who do we want to start at the center? We want the best center to start. You do have a notion after watching both players play center between Carell and Lug. I think Carell's a better center. And you have a point to make about Josh Lug being put in a position where he may have to start at center against Clemson. It's his third best position, and you're right. asking him to start at center. He's a better tackle than he is a guard by a bit, and he's a better guard than he is a center for by a decent amount, I would think. Um, yeah, so a healthy Zeke Carell with an ankle that can hold up. Right. is our never been to a practice all season to watch either one snap guess. We should, we should point that out. This, well, based upon, I mean, year. we, I think everybody liked the way that Corral played against North Carolina. He was, he was stout. He's not that big. He's not, he's not going to be able to, you know, push Tyler Davis around because Tyler Davis is, is bigger and stronger and older. But I do want to say this, and I mentioned this in today's Thursday thoughts. And Brent Venables, I'm not taking anything away from Brent Venables. I'm not saying he's not a great defensive coordinator, but I still like, and I like Tommy Reese matching up against him the first time. And I like Tommy Reese matching up against him the second time with a more established receiver core and with three more games under his belt and more formations and no, and more personnel groupings for Brent Venables to consider. I agree with you. And to add to that point of, I have faith in Reese and in Venables. I'd like to point out that Venables doesn't have a 2018 defensive line. And that's why we have more faith. That's in exactly it. That's exactly it. That Brent Venables is a great defensive coordinator. 
but he's not as great with the personnel that he has on the field now compared to certainly compared to two years ago. Oh gosh. And somebody, uh, those fun message board things I love to get into is uh, who would you want to add to this Notre Dame team from this, for this game, you know, all that fun stuff like in the summer. Uh, and I was with, well, let's, let's throw Jalen Smith out there at Buck and see what happens. But I don't want Clemson to be able to add Christian Watkins or Isaiah Simmons. I don't want that trade. Let's just go play football as it is, because I've been saying for the last two months, I think Notre Dame has come up and Clemson has come down and that's what has helped. It's not that Notre Dame didn't go beat the 2018 Clemson team. They don't have to, they have to beat this one. Man, you could name like any one of four <laughs> defensive linemen from Clemson. And, and, and Isaiah Simmons is, is great as Jeremiah Wusu Koromoa has been and is going to be a high draft pick and a good pro. Isaiah Simmons is one of the most freakish defensive players yeah. that I've ever seen. And he and won't, great, if he's there, he'll be in street clothes. So it's a, it's a compliment to <laughs> Jeremiah Wusu Koromoa that Ian Book last year brought that up to you and that we don't think it's a ridiculous notion anymore. That that's a good player comparison, but Isaiah Simmons was out of this planet, and uh, yeah. But the point is, Notre Dame has catching has caught Clemson, and Clemson has come down. And I, I that's why I think Tommy Reese will again have a very good day against Brent Venables because I think Tommy Reese has a line that can allow that to happen. Yeah, you know, I'd like to think. I mean, there's there's nervousness about Notre Dame doesn't make the playoffs if they get hammered. That really shouldn't be an issue. I'm not saying it can't happen or won't happen. I just don't. I do not expect that to happen. Notre Dame has narrowed the gap. I know Notre Dame and the players individually, collectively, don't think that's going to happen. I don't think that's a consideration. I can see myself sitting in Bank America Stadium uh, lamenting me making this comment, but I don't think that that's going to happen. You know, I'm going to tease something that Jack Swarbrick uh, said that, look, that shouldn't happen in terms of the moment Notre Dame's approach to this game, Notre Dame's talent level, Notre Dame's togetherness, their ability to play. If you're sitting there and that happens, it's because something odd happened in a football game. Something odd can happen. If Notre Dame fumbles with the Ian Book there and it's recovered, it goes 99 yards the other way when you're already down 10 to three. I mean, that's when some really stuff, that stuff can happen. And Clemson has the players to make things happen like that, but it can happen to Clemson too. I, I, I think we all agree that if Notre Dame goes up 20 to nothing, you're a little more wary that Trevor Lawrence is going to come roaring back than you are if Notre Dame goes down 20 to nothing. That maybe is the fair way to say it in this matchup, but I just don't expect anyone going down 20 to nothing. Yeah. The, the, uh, Speaking of lamenting comments, uh, Brian Kelly talking about rematches being lower scoring, uh, and I'm, and I, I immediately get nervous hearing him say that, knowing that that six foot six Trevor Lawrence is going to be walking on the field. I remember before the I don't know if you were with me before the the Cotton Bowl on the field uh, before the game, and it was it was well before the game, and Clemson just walked on the field and and. Uh, and Trevor Lawrence was in street clothes and nobody's around. Nobody's in the stands, but I, he walked out on the field and walked across the field. And I got a chill down my spine just by the presence of this freshman walking across the field and to see him kind of like from about 20 yards, just to see what you're talking about here, how long and athletic and confident this guy was striding across the football field that day in Arlington. If I, uh, if I was down there, I, you know, that from my cotton bowl experience, I had a chill going down my spine for about uh, 16 hours. So that was a, uh, that was, that was a rough time for me. I might not have noticed Trevor Lawrence walking around as I was shivering and shaking. That, and that would up. have been a, a flu induced chill that yeah, you had good, uh, during that trip. Uh, 
my another concern here as we continue to look at this matchup and we'll continue to look at all the you know I between now and Monday I'm I, I have not watched the games played by Clemson the two games played by Clemson since Notre Dame and so we'll have a little bit more to go on in terms of film study but Man, can you do what you did against Travis Etienne again? You're not going to hold him to 28 yards, but can you hold him to 70? You know, that would be a great day. Oh, it would be a great day. Can he, can it take him six carries to get to those 28 yards? Because then you're setting the tone. That's fine. You know, can you, can, if he runs 15 times and finishes with 68 yards, you've won the, you've won again against Travis Etienne. Hopefully he's not getting 28 yards on a carry in the first quarter where things loosen up. That's, you know, you got you got to make the tackle. He he, his first carry was I think nine yards, right? You don't make that tackle out when he goes for twenty eight yeah. yards, and it, it's just a, that's the type of player you're dealing with. Um, my concern is that you're not going to hold him four for fifteen on third down because Lawrence is there. I think that's the big difference. But Notre Dame fans, while we're saying all our concerns right now, I don't think Michael Mayer is going to drop a touchdown. I don't think he's going to jump off sides on fourth and two when you have to kick another field goal, and uh, I don't think Reese is going to get stripped going in for the touchdown. Look. If Tommy Reese just gets tackled there, it's first and goal at the two when he's stripped by Jake Venables. Think about he converted the first down. It was third and one, and he was running for a four-yard touchdown. Like Notre Dame's inside the five behavior in that game almost lost the game for them, not even inside the red zone, inside the five. And I don't think you're going to see that again from Notre Dame. Now, that's probably why I was you know, watching that last goal line, the last drive and the touchdown to Avery Davis, and you're thinking, oh, my gosh, it's third and four. They're really not going to get in again. So – Venables obviously gives you some tough stuff, but uh, I think if you're a Notre Dame fan, you have to realize three times inside the five and you got six, that shouldn't happen again either. Yeah. Last thing, Tim, before we wrap up this uh, segment one, we talked about Reese versus Venables matchup, Tony Elliott versus Clark Lee. How does Clark Lee uh, make sure that ETN has another off day? It's going to be harder with Lawrence on the field. Uh, Latson is hurt at wide receiver. He made a little bit of a contribution. Yeah. Powell is still, I, I don't expect Justin Ross to talk about Justin Ross. I don't know. We'll see about that, but I, I just, I doubt that come up, but Tony Elliott versus Clark Lee. Yeah. The, I think the whole key to that game, we, I referenced it briefly is the tackling because Tony Elliott does a great job of getting full speed of Mari Rogers, catching the ball in space. And he did do some damage. I mean, there was the two 30-yard plays, but Notre Dame has an impressive ability to bounce back after giving up a big play, including a nine-yard gate on first down. All of a sudden, it's, well, now it's third and two. How'd that happen? Because Drew White made a great point. We don't believe in momentum on defense. We go clean it up. If if they're driving on us, we clean it up on the sidelines of the very next play. I mean, on the very next series, I think they clean it up within one play. I look at it when I see second one, I'm like, well, Clemson's going to get the first down. And all of a sudden you're looking at third and three. It's right. like, what a play by Ade Ogundeji. You right. know, they, they they have the playmakers too. I really think we may, if Notre Dame loses this game and someone says Clark Lee gave up 34 points, I think it's going to be because Notre Dame doesn't make the tackles they made in that first game. That's a great frame of mind to have. Right? So you don't, you know, I mean, you just move on to the next play and Notre Dame has, has done that. That's it for segment one. Segment two coming up, our interview with Notre Dame Vice President and Director of Athletics, Jack Swarbrick. Today's Irish Illustrated Insider Podcast is sponsored by ShelbySweats.com. Shelby, at Shelby underscore sweats on Instagram, is a certified personal trainer and online fitness and health coach. Shelby offers one-on-one coaching to provide her clients with custom fitness and health plans at work. Shelby uses her own 60-pound weight loss journey to help clients look and feel their best without over-exercising or restriction. 
Her fitness methodology combines strength training, cardio, yoga, boxing, and functional movement and flexibility. For a free 30-minute video chat consultation with Shelby, fill out a form on her site, shelbysweats.com, or an email to shelbysweatstraining at gmail.com. Illustrated Insider, a little bit of a change up here today. We have a special guest from the University of Notre Dame, Vice President and Director of Athletics, Jack Swarbrick. Jack, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. It's been it's been a career ambition to be on this. Is that right? Yeah. You should have let us know earlier then. <laughs> we could have had you on years ago. Hey, a, a few weeks ago when you and I talked for a pretty lengthy interview, I asked you what was at the forefront of your mind and what is occupying your thought process some eight months into the pandemic. We're more like nine months into it now. And I find that, found it enlightening that your response was, quote, how incredibly fortunate I am to be dealing with this where I am. Could you share your thoughts on how the people in Notre Dame have responded to this challenge? Not so much the coaches and players, because we've talked about that, but the behind the scenes people. You said, this is what you told me, you said that the people in Notre Dame have been literally working around the clock in efforts to control the pandemic while serving the, the university. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for the opportunity to talk about that. And, and I, I don't want to focus on the student athletes, and I won't, but I, but I always have to start with them, because because they've been the shining example of it. So I won't, I won't bore you with the details of all they've done, but no one has sacrificed more or committed more than they have. But everything we've done changed. And it, it, it changed in ways that people had to be very flexible and often put in a ton more effort. So there, there's a process by which we engage in strength and conditioning, right? It's a version of it for years. Well, now all of a sudden you can't work out more than 10 people at a time. And so that strength staff doesn't have one session with a team. They've now got three or five or eight. And they had to completely re-engineer how they worked. They had to put in a lot of time to cover, get the coverage they needed. And that sort of thing just gets replicated at every place here. We had our staff reassigned to jobs. The, some of the people in the main office here, um, Cynthia, who most of you know when you walk in is the first person you encounter, she was cleaning golf carts at Warren Golf Course um, to help make that operation work. Everybody just stepped up. If you went to a volleyball match, you saw the ball people may have been senior athletic, uh, associate athletic directors. I mean, it was just, it was staff members who said, okay, we need ball people, I'm, I'm there. At the swim meet we just had, our timers were all people who volunteered. Softball coaches, lacrosse coaches who said, yeah, okay, I, I get that you can't bring in timers, we're, we'll be there. Um, so it's just been, everything we've done has changed and everything we've had to change required more effort from a whole bunch of people and they delivered each time. Yeah, yesterday you mentioned who actually serves the food to the players because you're all in a bubble. I mean, yeah. it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not the people that normally serve you food. It's actually people from the strength and conditioning department and department or wherever. Yeah, I felt especially good when it was being ladled on by Father Nate. <laughs> this is the highest level of food safety. I've asked Brian Kelly how the COVID experience that he and his staff and players have gone through has made the football team 
more disciplined and better prepared on the field on game day when the game is on the line in double overtime, et cetera. How have you seen the, the COVID experience manifest itself within the team on the field on game day? Well, all, all traumatic experiences create bonds that you can't normally create. You try to, but when you go through something really hard together, there's a, there's a cohesiveness and a, a relationship develops that is unique. And, and we're seeing that this year. Um, they have been galvanized by the process of going through COVID. So one is they really trust each other. And, and I know that's an overused word in sport, but it's really central to operating effectively. I, I, because I trust you all the time now, I trust you to make the right decision on what you do when you leave the building. Um, I trust you to keep the rest of the team safe. I also trust you to be where you're supposed to be on the field during that play. Or, or I trust you to communicate effectively with me about how we're going to block this, this particular play. And, and, and so there's this underlying trust that you're always trying to build, but that's forged in a different way during a crisis like this. And a byproduct of that is also the affection they feel for each other. I've said it several times, but you can, you can see on our best teams, you always have a level of affection, which is different. They love each other. They, they care about their teammates' success as much as they care about theirs. And we've seen that over and over again. I mean, in the reaction to somebody having a moment of success on the field, you know, it's, you'll, you'll see the first one to rush and jump on them is, is somebody who's competing for playing time with that person. And we've just seen it over and over again. So in, in terms of trust and just the bond, the affection, it's very palpable. You know, there was a perception early in the, the pandemic that Notre Dame was going to have to coerce the ACC into accommodating your football program uh, for the 2020 season. And I'm sure there was a level of negotiation, which uh, you obviously can speak to. But I've always said that Notre Dame and the ACC have a business relationship in many other facets of, of intercollegiate athletics. Could you explain Notre Dame's relationship with ACC and how the partnership has evolved through these obviously very difficult times? Yeah, it, it has from day one been a, been a great partnership. A lot of that credit goes to Commissioner Swafford, who set the tone for it, but also our, our colleagues in the other 14 institutions have been great. Um, there, there, are, there are challenges we present, especially in scheduling, not just in football, but in the other sports because of our misclass policy. And, and they've been great about working with us um, to, to help help us meet the standard we have for not missing class, but, but also be a full, a full participant in each of the sports. Whether it's the assignment of championship locations um, where we've been able to host some or whatever it is, the building of a schedule to make sure there's competitive equity, we've been treated like every other member. They have been marvelous to us. And, and, and so it's been a very natural and frankly, easy relationship from the first day. The football dynamic, people would be shocked at how little was involved in causing it to happen. Um, I, I don't, I literally don't remember who placed the first phone call, whether it was Commissioner Swafford to me or me to him, but there were probably half a dozen calls after that where we talked through uh, a few issues. We got to a point where I was concerned with uh, nailing it down one way or another. 
because I, I could see the challenge that we might lose our Pac-10 games and our Big Ten games. And, you know, if, if I was going to have to replace those, I thought I had opportunities, but the window was really small. And um, I, they were able to accommodate that timetable. I, I, I've got to know by this date, because otherwise I've, I've got to, I've got to know I've got big 12 and sec games available. Right. To me. And, um, they were great. Uh, got it done on that timetable. And we were the, the, the process of figuring out how to schedule it was relatively easy. And, you know, it, it was a big deal to go from a division basis to a one, uh, just the conference wide standings. Um, but it was really the only way to bring us in. I wonder if you could help me with a uh, Twitter debate that I've been involved in in the last 24 hours. Uh, some have suggested just canceling the ACC championship game would send Notre Dame and, and Clemson both to the, the, the playoffs, directly to the college football playoff. I, personally, I consider that dodging a predetermined competition, competition to win the ACC, which is offensive to me, uh, not to mention bypassing a TV uh, payday if you were not to play that. Was to set the record straight, was there ever any consideration uh, of not playing the ACC championship game? Never. This is the this is literally the first time I've I've had somebody suggest it. Um, you know that is where the championship is determined. As as much as I'd love to claim a regular season championship banner, it doesn't exist. Um, the the ACC championship is determined in that game, and um, no one would ever consider not not crowning that champion, not having that game. And so, no, there was never a moment's thought about it. And we're looking forward to it. And I think it's a great showcase for the league. I, you saw the numbers that Clemson and Notre Dame did the first time around. Uh, I'm pretty sure these are going to be bigger. And, and that's going to be a spectacular opportunity to show off the ACC. Jack, we have some questions from our readers. But before we get into that, I, I would like you to talk about the, the fight um, for the Notre Dame student athlete, it's a, it's next Tuesday, December 15th. Uh, could you explain that process and, and what you're trying to accomplish? Because you and I, a couple of weeks ago, talked about the revenue streams that have been interrupted during this pandemic. And obviously that's a huge concern for you and the, the athletic department and the university. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, you know, we, we always want to be self-sufficient. We don't want to be a draw on the university's resources and, and we're challenged to do that in a big way, having lost the vast majority of our revenue streams while re retaining most of our expenses, like the student athlete grant aid is a major expense. So we want to take an opportunity before the end of the year to, to invite people to assist if they can. I want to be clear that we were very conscious of the fact there are needs everywhere. And I hope the members of the Notre Dame family will act to serve the needs they think are most pressing, whether that's hunger in their community, helping people who have lost jobs, whatever it may be. And, and this is not to do anything to discourage that. For those who are whose passions run to Notre Dame athletics, if you're in a position to help us meet our commitments to the student athletes, that's what this is about. I'm trying to make sure that as we move forward, whatever hard decisions we have to make, we don't compromise our core commitments to the student athletes relative to education, personal growth, and athletics. 
And so I want to make sure we can still create educational opportunities for uh, study abroad that we've been able to do for student athletes or internships, job internships, as other students get an opportunity to do for student athletes. Frankly, it's some of the nutrition and medical services and training things we do. So it's not about funding coaching salaries or being able to go take a team somewhere. It's about those core things we do for the student athletes and wanting to make sure that if we possibly can, we don't have to cut back on them. That's what, that was my next question, Jack. Uh, I mean, there's talk all across the country about schools, universities having to cut athletic programs. Will you be able to, to avoid that moving forward? I don't know. And, 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 at this point, we can't take anything off the table, given the magnitude of the challenge. But I also don't want people to view the fight as about that. If we raise X, there won't be any sport cuts. Right. This, is, this is much more about making sure we have those resources for whatever student athletes are part of our program. We're meeting the commitments we say we will. We're, we're giving them the experience that Notre Dame's always stood for in this. And um, that's the goal. A few questions from our readers, Jack. Uh, some familiar names that, that usually contribute to our podcast, not Jay Tafel One. If this football season has told us anything, it's that schedules can be very flexible. Do you foresee scheduling changing in the future in which ADs become more flexible in scheduling and schedule games with less time in advance? I would love that, but I don't think so. Um, at least as far as football is concerned. Yeah, at least as yeah. far as football is concerned. Obviously, basketball does it, you know, in between seasons, which is great. Um, the, the logistical challenges with football are so great um, that it's just hard. I, I would be an advocate for a system that asks every team to hold one game back. So you could take that one game and sort of have a – a day where you try and match those up, right? Like, you know, going into the season. Um, I think that would be interesting and fun. And I, I think you could manage the, the consequences of it. But our audience would be, I think, surprised given the dynamics of moving football around how far in advance we have to secure enough hotel space, for example, for the team and get the know that you've got the airline charter. And there, there are a lot of things I know we've seen some greater flexibility in this period of time, but keep in mind, it's also a period of time where nobody's staying in hotels where where there's very little flying going on. There's all kinds. Two years ago, we were talking about the crisis of not being able to find charter aircraft for our teams. This year there's aircraft sitting all over the place. So this situation, I think they cause people to think it's easier to do than it is. Um, I'd love to see if we could create a little mechanism where there is one game available, but uh, beyond that, with conference schedules, um, with your need to have, most of us are trying to have seven home games and five away, or in our case, it's often um, one neutral site, mm-hmm. um, six home, four away, five away. Um, it's really complicated. We have a question from a subscriber here, and it's going to come off sounding like pandering, but he goes by the name of Swarbrick, Swarbrick for Prez. And his question is, 
Not related to me, by the way. <laughs> where where does your love of sports come from, and what's more difficult, persuading and debating in the courtroom, or persuading and debating on behalf of Notre Dame athletics? Oh, I'll take the latter. It's it, it's a uh, while I love doing it, it's much harder to persuade and debate uh, for Notre Dame in, in the in the broad um, communication sphere. Um, the, the courtroom has rules for it, right? And it's structured and it's, uh, there are two parties arguing typically. Um, it, it's, a, it's a much bigger challenge, but as I say, I love it because I love this place and I love doing it. But um, one of the things I have had to learn, I think you and I have talked about this before is my instinct when I got here was to defend every slanderous or libelous thing that was said about a student athlete. And you just can't do it. You just, and it's frustrating, but if you engage, you just extend the argument, right? You just give it life that you don't, you don't want to give it. So, so that is hard to do. Um, but um, what, what you learn to do is focus on the positive stories and getting the energy out uh, for those student athletes. As for my love of sport, um, it, it really was shaped very young. I was born in Yonkers, New York. And um, New York's always a vibrant sports town, but at that time in particular, it was it was Mantle and Maris um, and the Yankees. I went to the Mets' first home game ever. My grandfather took me out of kindergarten, took me down to the polo grounds. I saw the Mets play the Pirates in, in their, their first home game in franchise history. I used to go out to Hofstra and watch the Jets work out preseason. I was an absolute Joe Willie Namath nut. Um, and, and so I grew up around all that environment. We had a family relative who owned a, a bar in Yonkers and it's where the Yankees and Giants used to hang out. Um, so it was just all around me, not because we were in into sports particularly, but sort of the nature of New York and the nature of some of the experiences um, I, I was privy to. And, and yes, I was an eight-year-old sitting in a bar <laughs> watching, <laughs> watching Whitey Ford and Mickey Mantle argue about something. And you, and of course, you had a lacrosse background as well. Uh, I didn't until I got here. Oh, I gotcha. I um, I played high school football on an incredibly success part of an incredibly successful program. It was Bloomington High School back then, now Bloomington South, and uh, we won fifty-six consecutive games. Wow. And several several state titles and I, that is not an argument for me to take any credit for it it was just a remarkable team and I was part of it um, but when I got here to Notre Dame I missed that so much and um, so I was looking for I, I didn't think I was a viable walk-on candidate for the football team so I was looking for something else where I could hit people and and lacrosse seemed a likely choice so I uh, Rich O'Leary let me let me walk onto the lacrosse team, and while I never made much of a contribution, it was it made my Notre Dame experience much richer. And what led you to, what led you to Notre Dame as a student? Yes. Oh boy, um, I, I'm not sure we have time for the story, but it's one of my favorites. I um I knew neither of my parents went to college. Um, I didn't know a lot about the process. I lived in Bloomington, Indiana at the time. So I applied to two schools. I applied to Indiana University 
and I applied to Notre Dame because I was an Irish Catholic from New York. I, at that point, I had never been on Notre Dame's campus, by the way. Um, I got into both schools, and that was the first time I bothered to look at what tuition cost at Notre Dame. And I realized immediately I wasn't going to Notre Dame. So I sent a letter, a bit of an odd thing to do, but I sent a letter to Notre Dame, respectfully declining their, their offer to, to attend. And I secured my room in Bloomington and knew who my roommate was going to be. And um, in the mail, a week later or so, came a scholarship from the state of Indiana that could be used at any public or private institution in the state. I didn't, I didn't apply for this. I didn't, I didn't know how it happened. And here all of a sudden I had the resources to allow me to go to Notre Dame. So I called the admissions office and said, look, you don't know who I am, but I wrote you a letter saying I'm not coming. Can I take it back? And, and honest to goodness, the guy I'm talking to says, your letter is sitting on my desk in front of me. I said, well, can you tear that up? He said, I'd be happy to. So there's one more piece to this story, which is kind of emotional for me. Years later, I wind up here in my current position. And one of the privileges of that job was the opportunity to go visit Father Ted from time to time. And we'd sit and just talk about, you know, you know, Father Ted, whatever was on his mind. You just sort of give a prompt and then sit back. And, you know, it, it would be fascinating. So... One time I, I said to him, what was your relationship like with Herman Wells? Herman was the president of IU who was there, Ted Hesper. Herman, Herman really transformed Indiana University and was the president for a long time. Ted said, oh, I loved Herman. We had the best working relationship. He was one of my best friends. And we did so much fun stuff together. He said, you know what I'm most proud of, though? He and I conned the Indiana State Legislature into creating a scholarship program <laughs> that could be used at both public and private high schools or colleges. My scholarship had been made possible by Ted's remarkable political skills. And, and I thought that was such a, I, I was so amazed when he tells me the story um, that I was the beneficiary of that work. Well, I'm, uh, I'm one of the luckiest Nordium graduates in the history of the school myself. And I had some, some, uh, some people in the South Bend area that were pulling for me, uh, Dick Rosenthal being one, Jerry Hammes being another. So um, I didn't, I, I'm still not sure that I belong there, but uh, I, I made this circuitous route there as well. Uh, Irish John M. has a question. It is, how long are you staying in Notre Dame? Any plans to retire soon? And he adds, I hope not because we need you for another 10 years. You're doing a great job. Well, that's very kind of them. And I, I assure you 10 years is outside the window, but uh, I really don't spend much time thinking about it. Um, I'm, I feel very connected to Father Jenkins. And so um, I'll, I'll probably be influenced a lot by what his ultimate timetable is. But I'm, I, am, I am eager to try and steer through what's coming. And a lot of very big stuff is coming. You know, we will, we will implement name, image, and likeness uh, in the coming year. There's another aspect of this people aren't very focused on, which is additional educational benefits under a case called Alston, which we have to deal with. The one-time transfer rule will come into effect. So more change in our industry than ever before but on top of that, we're sort of entering the period where the broadcast agreements will get renegotiated. 
and and I think there's a there's a chance that once again that will prompt some reconsideration of of conference affiliation and alignment. And um, if if I still feel up to it, um, I'd I'd love to help steer Notre Dame through that period of time. This is a discussion that you and I had, you know, probably more than a year ago without the pandemic in mind. And so your your frame of mind as far as how long you remain in Notre Dame obviously has shifted because of everything that's happened the last nine months. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I, I just, um, you know, I want to be clear that if if either, you know, for health reasons, I thought it didn't make sense. Or I didn't have the energy to give it. Or if the university decided it was, you know, probably time to be thinking about the next person, I'd, I'd, I'd be more than happy to help in a transition. But um, as long as I feel up to it and have the energy, um, I, I feel a real calling to try and help steer through what's going to be, as I said, an incredibly challenging time, not just for Notre Dame, but for college athletics. Our last question, Jack, is from Blue Chip Man, and he asks, uh, or he leaves an open-ended statement, and that is Notre Dame doesn't get into the college football playoff if? If the uh, selection committee makes the wrong decision. <laughs> well, let me <laughs> – I didn't expect you to say that. Uh, based upon a, a similar question to you yesterday in our, in our larger press conference, but uh, let me ask you this. What makes you confident that Notre Dame – can do the unlikely winning rematches is very difficult. What makes you confident that that can happen on December 19th in Charlotte? Nothing about the challenge or the atmosphere is going to, going to be tough for this team. Now, whether they win or not, we're facing a phenomenal team. I don't know, but the, the moment won't get to them, not after what they've gone through this year. Um, so, so I think they'll be fully prepared. We go into it in pretty good health. Um, and so, and they, they believe very strongly that they can, they can win. So, so that's why I'm confident about it. Um, on the larger issue, you know, I, I, I think even if that game doesn't go our way, um, and, and I did avoid the question yesterday, but I view this as a slightly more, more, more regional, I um, you know, I think we'll end the season, even if that game doesn't go our way, with the, the single best win and the single best loss in college football. Uh, and I think that's a pretty good that's a pretty good resume to carry in. Yeah, and I, I think most people, most objective people are looking at this like, you know, even if Notre Dame comes up short against Clemson, they have a spot in the playoffs. You know, there's a lot of talk about if it's one-sided. I don't anticipate this game being one-sided. I don't think it should be at this stage of – of Notre Dame's development, the development, the way they match up against Clemson. I'm sure you look at it the same way. Yeah, I, I, I do. I mean, odd things happen in football games. You know, I, I, I recognize that it gets a little more interesting if Florida were to upset Alabama um, in terms of how people look at teams. But I, I, I still think for the reasons I said earlier that uh, we've made a pretty compelling case and, especially proud that we've made that case over an entire season. Um, thanks to, thanks to a lot of great decisions, starting with father John's decision about opening Notre Dame and then the ACC's decision about its schedule. Notre Dame vice president and director of athletics, Jack Swarbrick. Jack, we appreciate you being with us today. My pleasure. Thank you.
That was Jack Swarbrick joining Iris Illustrated Insider. Tim, your thoughts on comments by Jack Swarbrick today? Yeah, I, I'm glad you started with that first question, Tim, about uh, all the things that went into it, because I really don't think I paid enough attention to have any idea about what was going into it. I never considered the fact that volleyball needed ball boys and ball girls to be ball men and ball women and, and of course, cleaning them and softball coaches coming in and timing for swimming. That's it's a rem remarkable team effort and the word team used in the literal sense, the university team to make this all happen for fall sports. I mean, we were so focused on so focused on football that I just I didn't pay enough attention to what has yeah. to go on here. And, and I, I thought that I thought it much more interesting that he talked about how the other sports had to operate during a pandemic. Right. Yeah. I, I, I had to include that question because when we had the interview about three or four weeks ago, I was just struck by, you know, the comment about how incredibly, incredibly fortunate he is to be dealing with the people that he ha he has in Notre Dame and where he is. And it just speaks for, for those of us that whether you're a Notre Dame graduate or Notre Dame fan, I mean, it just speaks volumes about uh, the people at Notre Dame and what the experience that like it uh, is like at Notre Dame under the most difficult of circumstances. And you've, uh, you've asked Brian Kelly twice this year about how the COVID experience has helped his, his team and his staff on the field. And uh, I think Jack gave you the better answer of the two times Brian Kelly tried. But the line I thought was, uh, I believe it was traumatic experiences create bonds you can't normally create. And it's, it's such a good point in every aspect of life. And in, in this case, it's created friendships and stuff like that, that and a level of trust, trust, most over overused word, right? In football, trust is always something there. But boy, when you go through it, you went through, you probably do trust them a little bit more. Well, and the trust between Notre Dame and the ACC is is great now. And it was interesting that he said he doesn't even know who made the first phone call, you know, in trying to get together and eventually Notre Dame be becoming a part of the ACC, at least for this year. I think that, I think that speaks volumes about John Swafford. It, it does. And also I want to, you, you have talked about this a lot on our message board when people ask about the ACC and Notre Dame. And, and you mentioned, look, there's a business partnership here. This is not just them getting together to play football. They, they have a relationship here. It's not Jack Swarbrick getting his way or not getting his way, or the ACC can do this to Notre Dame. He mentioned how, the, how well the marriage has worked out in every other sport, despite the challenges Notre Dame presents and comparatively easy for football this year. I just can't imagine that either, but he's, he said it was a few conversations and all he really needed to worry about was the timetable because if he couldn't be part of the league, he had to make a schedule. And as it turns out, that would have gone poorly because the SEC pulled their non-conference situation as well. He might not have had as, as much of a schedule to be made right. as he yeah. thought. Well, it's because, you know, normally when you hear backlash about Notre Dame from other schools, it's Coach K commenting about yeah. Notre Dame joining the ACC. It's Pat Narduzzi talking about, you know, they shouldn't be if they're not a full-time member, then we shouldn't be playing them. I don't know why I thought of this the other day, but it's amazing how little coaches know about some of their universities and why I'm proud that Brian Kelly has completely in the last nine years stopped talking about the university and how it runs things because he doesn't know either. It's the athletic directors that do these things and the athletic directors that have these relationships because no one cares what Pat Narduzzi thinks. Literally, no one cares. Right. Some people care what Coach K thinks, but his athletic director in this case does not because he knows the bigger picture. Yeah, well, those guys know the business end of it, and that's at the end of the day, that's what is the driving force behind just about every decision that's made. We asked, we asked Jack Swarbrick about his background, and it, it was interesting uh, to hear him talk about being a kid in Yonkers, New York, being at the first Mets game. Yeah, that's and sit and sitting in a bar as an eight-year-old uh, 
cheering for Mantle and Maris. I just tell you what, when he said his grandfather pulled him out of kindergarten to take him to the first ever Mets game, I got to start pulling some kids out of school for other reasons here to go do some <laughs> stuff because uh, that's a memory you'll never forget. That's something you'll never forget. And the eight-year-old sitting in the bar is great. That's just a, uh, I would be proud to uh, bring Declan to sit in a bar and watch some, uh, <laughs> some football games that, you know, I'd actually rather be covering it, but maybe I'll do that for the yeah, Maybe, let's go hang out in the bar, watch the game a little bit. We had, uh, I thought it was neat that we could include a, a question from Swarbrick for Prez uh, with him, and he did get a kick out of that. But, um, you know, he talked about, and, and that question was about which is, uh, how was it phrased? What's more difficult, persuading and debating in the courtroom or uh, for Notre Dame athletics? It was funny, he said, you know, when he first became AD, he wanted to argue slanderous comments made every time there was a slanderous comment made about a Notre Dame student athlete he wanted to argue the case well he's also given us a uh, a catchphrase for everybody here that gets in unnecessary arguments on Twitter especially message boards maybe you can keep discussing nicely on message boards but engagement extends the argument so if you don't want if you don't want to ex- if you don't want to like encourage the slanderous comment and why you would have to defend the person just don't engage it it goes away eventually and that has got to be the hardest thing to learn you probably learned it once the hard way and isn't going to share that part of the story, but you know, well, it's very hard if you believe something strongly than not to engage someone that has no idea what they're talking about. Right. We did not expect him to answer, to fill in the blank. Notre Dame doesn't get into the college football playoff. If the committee makes a mistake, <laughs> didn't expect him to say that, but you know, I look, I think he clearly is confident that Notre Dame can win a rematch. It's going to be extremely difficult. It's difficult under any circumstances. Uh, especially with Trevor Lawrence coming back and Tyler Davis and, and those people and Notre Dame not having Jarrett Patterson. But uh, I think we all feel pretty confident that if certainly if Notre Dame competes against Clemson and that's, I mean, that's a put down. They absolutely should compete and should have a chance to win a football game. Regardless, if they lose the game, they should be in a position to still make the playoffs. And I, I disagree with the point he made. And I think it's a point Reese Davis made. I didn't see the entire um college football playoff reveal knowing who was going to be but he this is a game of attrition they made it through an entire season he said I'm proud we made it through an entire season Reese Davis mentioned what is Ohio State had to go through I hate to just use them but what is a big 10 team had to go through to make it compared to Alabama Clemson Notre Dame Florida these Texas A&M these other teams that play and play and play and lose players every single week you're not losing players if you're not playing you're simply preparing for a one-off and it I, I, I can't get down with, I don't care how good Ohio State is. I, I, I can't imagine Notre Dame, Alabama, or Clemson, uh, Notre Dame, Alabama being left out of this because they lose a football game after all they've gone through. Right. That's our uh, Thursday, December 10th podcast. Thanks for joining us back to our regular format on Monday. Here's Illustrated Insider Podcast. If you enjoy our coverage of Notre Dame football, please consider supporting the podcast with a small donation. Go to irishillustrated.com support. Your support will help Irish Illustrated continue to be the leader in coverage of Notre Dame athletics.